just welcoming each other. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we open up Scripture that you would give us a fresh word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a question, and I want to ask you, how would you feel if I told you that beginning today, there would never be any more sickness? How would you feel that if I said that if you are sick, you would be instantly healed? How would you feel if I told you that those marriage problems you have would be erased and everything would be perfect? How would you feel if I told you that you never had to take another exam or quiz in your life again? That there would be no homework? How would you feel if I told you that any of those problems that you have at work, instantly gone because now you're the boss? How would you feel if I told you that from this moment on, everything and every part of your life would be perfect? How would you feel? We'd say amen, right? I don't like going through hard times in my life. I don't like that at all. Recently, however, um, and some of you know this, my my father had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so February 1, he had surgery to have that removed. And um, he's awaiting to start his first round of chemotherapy. And when I think about that sometimes, I wonder, I wish that he didn't have to go through that. Because for those of you who have had or who currently know somebody who is going through that, it's not easy. And so sometimes I long for a world where nothing bad will ever happen because then I think I could enjoy every aspect of it. But what we find is that the life and the world that we live in is filled with illness and misery and strife and hurt feelings. What we find is that things aren't the way we wish they were, and oftentimes things happen to us that we don't want to have happen to us. So this morning, as we continue our Experiencing God series, if you're in one of our small groups, you probably have read what I'm about to read to you, but I want to share it because I think it's important. The author of the book of which we're going through, Henry Blackaby, he shares a story where he says that his 16-year-old daughter at the time was diagnosed with an advanced case of cancer. And this is what he writes about this experience. He says, Long before this experience with Carrie, our daughter, I had made a determination that no matter what my circumstances, I would never look at my situation except against the backdrop of the cross in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God forever convinced me that he loved me. For this reason, during Carrie's illness, I could go before the Heavenly Father and see behind my daughter the cross of Christ. I said, Father, don't ever let me look at my life and question your love for me. Your love for me was settled on the cross. That has never changed and will never change. Our relationship with the Heavenly Father sustained us through an extremely difficult time in our life. If there was one thing that you would walk away with this morning, aside from the beautiful singing and the skits and all of the beautiful stuff, it's my challenge that whatever you're going through in your life, that you would see only the cross of Christ and that Jesus suffered the ultimate death. An innocent man laid down his life so that you and I wouldn't have to. One of the things that my wife Kim and I talk about, mostly me talking about it, 
is right now everything is going really well in our lives, right? There's no real illness. There's nothing, you know, nothing horrible that's happening. And so one of the things that I keep bringing up to her and reminding her and reminding myself is that should the moment ever come when something horrible happens, may we never blame it on God. May we know that we live in a world that is filled with sin and illness and decay, and sometimes things will happen that will be tragic and horrific, but we never will blame God for that because God suffered the ultimate death for you and me, and that promise has given us the promise of resurrection and salvation. This morning's title of the sermon is, What Does It Look Like to Love God?, And I want to read to you one of the stories in the book. Now, Henry Blackaby writes, he was a pastor as well. He says, one of our church members was always having difficulty in his personal life, with his family, at work, in the church. In a church meeting, he became extremely angry and he stormed out of the room. It was obvious that his life was filled with anger. Soon after, I met with him and asked, can you describe your relationship with God by sincerely saying, I love you with all of my heart. The strangest look came over his face. He said, nobody has ever asked me that. No, I could not describe my relationship with God that way. I could say that I obey him, I serve him, I worship him, and I fear him, but I cannot say I love him. This man had a father who never told him he loved him. The son feared his father, but he didn't love him. The man had wrongly assumed God was the same kind of father. I helped this man realize God's love for him and wanted to, God's, God loved him and wanted to have a loving fellowship with him, and that trust set the man free to experience the love of the heavenly father. Have you ever heard the expression, hurt people hurt people? If that's true, because we've all heard it, and for the most part, hurt people do hurt other people, then I would say that the opposite is true, that loved people love people as well. So if you were raised in a family where you, your parents were extremely loving to you and supportive, and if you went to schools where teachers were happy to have you and happy to teach you, and if people were continually affirming you, you are going to live that way with other people as you grow up. But if you've been hurt, you will instantly ascribe other people are always trying to hurt you. And so in an act of defense, we oftentimes hurt other people. But loved people love people. And to show you that that's true, one of the texts that we're looking at this morning is found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And God tells the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Wait, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The text will go on to say, bind it on your hearts, on your foreheads, on your arms, on every part of who you are. You know, burn it into your heart so that everywhere you go, you will love God. One of the, this is, what, the, what this is called is the Shema which is an ancient prayer that parents, by the way, parents, this is for you, this is the prayer that you would teach your children at an even younger age than the kids that we have up here. 
from the moment that a child is born until the moment they're able to speak, the parent would continually teach their kids, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That word might is with all your strength. And, and one of the things that's sometimes we, we come to the Bible, one of the problems when we come to the Bible is we approach it with a 21st century understanding. Not only that, a, a United States of American 21st century understanding of the words that we find in the Bible. And so when we look at the word for love, I mean, we use love all of the time. I say it from the pulpit all the time. I love pizza. I love Togo's. I love Subway. And in the same, using the same word, I'll say, I love my wife. I love my children. I love my friends. Love is one of those words that really in the English language has really, in, in some senses, lost the full depth of its meaning. We say it all of the time. We, we tell our friends, oh, hey, I, you know, I love you. But I don't love them the same way that I love my wife or the same way that I love my family. And so this morning, there's two L words that I want to talk about. The first L word that I want to talk about is law. What we see in the Old Testament is that God gives the Israelites law. He starts with giving them ten commands, but then God also will go on to give hundreds of other commands to show the people, not to tell them that if they step out of line, God's going to punish them, but the laws were given to the Israelites at a time. They, they had been slaves for over 400 years. They had no laws. The only law that existed in Egypt was for them to make bricks, and if they didn't make bricks to build Pharaoh's kingdom, they would be killed or punished whipped or beaten. So God in His infinite goodness and mercy comes to the Israelites through Moses and Aaron and He says, these laws are here to help you get along with one another, to help you treat each other civilly and humanely. I'm giving you these rules or these boundaries so that you don't kill each other. And what has happened over the thousands of years is what God gave that was good and beautiful became something that people started beating other people up with. And so what happened over the centuries and over the millennia is that we took what God gave what was beautiful and helped the Israelites to understand how to live as a nation. We took it and we used it as a sword to, to injure other people when they fell out of line or out of boundary. So when Jesus comes onto the scene in the first century, he comes into a climate where the law was no longer something that was good, but it was something that people were using as a weapon against other religious people. And so on Sabbath, you could only walk a certain amount of feet, or, or yeah, of feet before you were breaking the Sabbath. And so what people would do is that the day before, if they had to travel further away, they would set up little posts of food or, or their camp or whatever it was so that they... Because, it, because if you started in one point and you reached this other place that you had already set up, then you weren't really breaking the law, and then you could walk for miles. They became so legalistic about it that when Jesus comes onto the scene, he is asked the question, Lord, by the religious people, what is the greatest commandment? And do you guys know what he said? So when they ask Jesus, teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest, he says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your mind. Now, Jesus changes it up a little bit, but if Jesus changes it, it's okay because he's God. But he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he says, this is the greatest and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Did Jesus go through the ten? Did he go through the other six hundred and so and so many laws in the Old Testament? Did Jesus say, okay, I'm going to teach you what all the laws are, so sit down, get out a piece of paper, and start writing? No, Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus arrives at a time when everybody was already following the law, but they had missed the central tenet and essence of the law, which is what? Love. So Jesus, in his awesome way, he could have answered it any way he wanted to. And what does Jesus say? What's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God and love each other. And that's it. Now, there's some of you in here who might be sitting here thinking, but that's too easy. Because what do you do with the other Ten Commandments? What do you do with all the other laws? What do you do about the stuff that you eat or you shouldn't eat or the stuff that you should drink or shouldn't drink? That's not enough. You can't just tell people to love God and then love each other because that's just not enough. Yeah, that's good. You should love people, but there's a lot of other things that God needs you to do. In fact, if you love God, you are going to do all these things. The truth is it doesn't really work out that way. I one time jokingly, jokingly told my wife, if you love me, you will... I forgot what it was. It was probably like get me water from downstairs or something. I don't know. And she looked at me with this look like, are you serious right now? If I love you, I will what? Don't test me. You don't do that. And I was like, okay, sorry. I've only been married under a year. Okay, get the point. But the truth is, it doesn't work if you love someone, then you'll do something. If you love someone, then whatever you do as a natural reaction to that love is good. And so the tale of the two L words is where the law was something good and beautiful. Human beings like us took it, abused it, and made it a weapon to hurt other people. And it is to that that Jesus comes into this world and he says then, if you can't do that right, love God and love each other, everything, all of the laws, all of the prophets. Basically, what Jesus was saying is that the entire Old Testament, the only Bible they had up to that point, he says all of that is summed up in these two things. Now, I don't know about you, but I have really long to-do lists. On the very rare day where there's only one or two things on that list, I think it's a good day, right? This past week for me was um, a very quiet week. I thought, man, there's, there must be something wrong because it just doesn't seem to be so many things coming up this week. And so I, fi- I figured, well, this is God's gift for me to just kind of, you know, recuperate from the past several months where we've just been going at such a high gear here at the church. So I don't know about you, but if there's only two things God is asking me to do as opposed to 643 other things, which one are you going to choose? The 643 things to do or the two? I mean, I'm just saying. It's not a sin to say the two, okay? It's not heresy. You see, the truth is, Jesus came to get to the essence of what God had planned and wanted all along, which is why Jesus says, love God, and if you truly love God, then you will love others. But we don't like that. 
because it's too easy. It sounds too superfluous and too ambiguous, and so we resort to just following law after law. Now, at my kid's school in the elementary side of the, of the school, there's a big white board or some kind of sign, and it says rules of the playground. And on it are 10 or 12 different rules, like you will respect each other, you will not fight. If you have a disagreement, you'll find a teacher. You know, all the rules you expect for children to have at school. And we look at that and we kind of interpret all of life like that. This past week, I was in court to clear up a uh, fix-it ticket, by the way. Okay, so it was like a fix-it ticket that had gone too long. And there was like 200 people in this courtroom, all guilty for something. Now, here's what happens. In the world that we live in, and most of these infractions were red lights, so I encourage you guys, implore you, stop at red lights, um, because their fines were high. Okay, speeding as well. But what I found is, or or not what I found, but what I was reminded of is that we live in a world and in a society where there are laws for everything, right? There's a law if you don't stop at a red light. There's a law if you go too fast and the cop catches you. And yes, you're still breaking the law even if you don't get caught, right? Just had to say that from the pulpit. But there's laws for everything. And if you break a law, what happens? Bob, what happens? You get cited. You get punished. There's a consequence for breaking the law. And so what happens is we take that understanding of the world and we apply it to God. So when it comes to following God's laws, we think if we don't follow them, then something bad's going to happen, right? You may not voice it, but in the back of your mind, if you've done something wrong, it might even slip out. God must be punishing me for this. I've thought that. I still think that sometimes. And I have to remind myself that's not how God works. That's not how God works because God has forgiven me through Jesus at the cross. And if that's true, and I believe what the Bible says, then God is not going to punish me for the sin that I commit. Amen? Does that sound too good to be true? Someone said yes. Do you guys agree with that? That God will not punish you for the sins you commit because Jesus has forgiven you at the cross if you accept that. Do you believe that to be true? Then God will not punish you for the sins you commit. Now, there may be consequences, natural consequences, but that's a whole separate other thing. God is not in the business of punishing. And so we take this idea of law and we choose it because it's tangible and it's real. But what God says is forget that, just love me and love others. And if you can do that, you will have completely and fully understood what Jesus came to do. But guess what? It's not easy to love people, is it? It's not always easy to be loving to our husbands or our wives or our friends or our coworkers or our colleagues. It's not always easy to love those who have hurt us or who have betrayed us. It's not easy. And God, I think, understood that. Because to truly love God and love others, it is the work of a lifetime, and it's something that God has to do through you and in you. Last week I said, and I'll repeat it this morning, love is not an emotion, but real love is a behavior. I could tell my wife all day long that I love her and then be a total jerk when she comes home. Is that being loving Don't ask her how I am, though, okay? (laughs) 
but it's not loving. I can tell my wife all day that I love her and then be having an extramarital affair. Is that love? And what do we see in the movies when that happens? Oh, but I love you. No, you don't. Because when you love someone, you treat them in such a way that shows them that you love them. But the question that came up is this. Because I know now some of you, if you're married, you're like, you see, you're like nudging your husband. Just hold on before you do that because none of us are perfect. But the question that came up last night as we were doing our Experiencing God study is one of the, one of the, one of the young adults, he says, but what happens when I'm at work and I treat that person kind of badly and rude? Does that mean that I don't love God with all my heart, mind, and soul? And in my mind, I said, well, no, but yes. You see, if, if we are to love God with our heart, mind, and soul, that means that with every bit of every ounce of who we are, whether it's our mental, spiritual, emotional, physical self, we must do everything that loves God. And so the question is, when we don't do something that's loving, does it mean that we've stopped loving God? What do you guys think? Huh? No. But yet my wife, if I do something mean to her or say something that's not kind, she could tell me what? You're not being very loving right now. So for that, I want to look at Romans chapter 7. And this is what Paul says. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And he says, the things I want to do, I don't always do. And the things that I don't want to do, right, the sinful things, the temptations, I sometimes find myself doing those things. And so the question we have to ask is, if you sin, does it mean that you stop loving God? If you act in an unkind way to other people, does it mean that you stop loving God? My answer to that would be no. It means that at those moments, God is offering you more grace. It's at the moments when you don't act the way God would want you to act is when God's grace abounds. And if we feel and sense that, then we must also have grace for those that we are hurting. Does that make sense? God's love for us must shape and form how we act with other people, which is why Jesus doesn't separate the two. He says, love God and love others. And Paul would go on to say this, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. So it's another way of saying everything I've read in the Bible, I believe it to be the 100% inerrant truth of God's Word. What I find in the Scriptures, I believe it and I know it's true. That's what he's saying. Verse 23 of Romans 7, he says, But I see in my members or in my body another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So basically he's saying, but I'm human. At the end of the day, although my mind knows and wants to do something better, my flesh, who I am as a human being, doesn't always do what I'm supposed to, and I kind of retract and do the evil things, okay? Bad things, unkind things. And this is what Paul says. I love this. He says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind I am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I am a slave to the law of sin. And this is what he's saying. He says, in my mind, 
I want to serve. I want to do everything that God has said, everything that has been written in Scripture, anything that will be written in Scripture, everything that God is telling me to do. If With my mind, I want to do that. I always want to be loving. I always want to be kind. I always want to pay my tithe and offerings, right? I never want to break the Sabbath. I want to do everything that God wants me to do with my mind, right? With my mind, with your mind, we want to do always what's the very best option because we know that as followers of Jesus, we want to do the very best. But what Paul is saying is like, yeah, but in reality, it's impossible to do that. You see, what Paul is giving voice to here is the problem we find ourselves in today. We want to do the best and we don't always get it done. And if we just have an endless list of things to do or things not to do, what happens is we'll get caught up in the lists and we'll forget that the purpose of the list was to help us to love God and to love others. Which comes back to the very first story that we had with, or the second story about the angry man who had all sorts of problems, but he never realized that he had substituted the image of his dad for the image of God, an unloving God. What we find in the scriptures is that God loves us unconditionally no matter what. There is nothing you could do that could separate you from the love of God. And even if you are an, un, even if you are an unbeliever and don't believe in Jesus, there is still nothing you can do or think or feel that will ever separate you from the love of God. Because God is not a child who if he doesn't get his way, he stops loving you. God is the ultimate loving supreme being who there is nothing you can ever do, which is why when we experience those difficulties in our lives, I believe that God weeps with us, right? Can God really cry? I don't know. But as parents, have you ever felt just your heart broken when your child has had to experience something difficult? Yeah, our heart breaks, don't you think God's heart does the same thing? You think, I think sometimes we expect God to fix everything. And what we forget is that God is right there in the midst of us feeling that same exact pain because sometimes things happen in this world that are not, have not gone according to plan. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing and Jesus wants us to be a part of that promise and that truth where he says, if you learn to love God and you learn to love others, everything else in life will fall into place because you have understood and reached the essence of what Jesus represents to us and what his death represents on the cross. Will you pray with me? God, we, um, we oftentimes struggle with the good news of forgiveness and of salvation. We struggle, Lord, because we, we feel guilty, because we feel remorse because of the sins that we have committed. But Lord, this morning I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for those who are visiting and for those who are members, that you would open our eyes and help us to feel that forgiveness that has already happened and that we would truly live the victorious life. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.